This is acid, man. Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idle, and today, as usual, I'm joined by Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Kia Milburn. Hello. And on today's Microdose, we're discussing Kill the Bill. So, guys, why do we want to talk about Kill the Bill, which is obviously a big thing that's going on right now? Yeah, well, basically, we, we, we've done a few microdoses where we've talked about current affairs, which is slightly outside of, the, of the, the normal pattern of our episodes. We did one about the Extinction Rebellion protests. And so this Kill the Bill movement and this police crime sentencing and court bill, it seems quite significant. It seems to point to, to a few things. I think it's a good way to get into the precise moment where we're at. So I think that's why we want to discuss it. And I think what we should probably start off by doing is is setting the context for why the bill has been proposed at this time and perhaps what the bill proposes, because I'm not sure everybody's clear on that. Nadia, you, I think you might be able to help with that part. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can give a, a short summary of this. So this is the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill 2021. PCSC bill. So this is kind of going through Parliament at the moment, and it is the first major change to the Public Order Act 1986 since 2003. And it's important for several reasons. So firstly, if all of these different bits of the bill go through and become an act, it renders the UK as an outlier in terms of international human rights norms, because it does basic things like it threatens the right to free assembly and it threatens basically Britain's institutional capacity to function as a democracy, which, you know, arguably is already kind of going down the pan. But that includes things like you get 10 years in prison if you damage a memorial, like a statue or whatever, in in Parliament Square. So that's like a good example of the sort of thing that's in it, which David Blunkett, out of all people, who used to be Home Secretary under uh, Blair, has actually come out, or he did this in March, he put out a statement saying that's just ironic. I mean, he's against the bill because Mandela and Gandhi's statues in Parliament Square all led the sort of protests that this bill would ban. But one of the other really dangerous things in it, it's a serious expansion of the Public Order Act, is that the argument is from even a legal perspective is that it's not workable in practice because it has things in it. So apart from, you know, if you spray paint a statue, you can get 10 years in prison. Okay, that's more or less clear. I mean, it's horrific, but it's clear. But it's got lots of stuff in it about like chanting or noise and whether that noise causes distress or alarm or harassment to a certain group of people or not. And or, or I find annoyance, that really, isn't it? Or annoyance. Yeah, uh, yeah you're right. The, the other really important one is annoyance, which, I mean, the main thing around this is that is what protest is supposed to do. It's supposed to be disruptive. Like, let's get very clear on this. 
Um, which is why, and we'll get onto this, I'm really interested in what the centre-left and the soft-left response is on this, which I don't know uh, much about. But it's almost like it w- it sits within a kind of uber discourse that I think's been, you know, banded around by people on the left as well about this this obsession with, you know, that you might perhaps offend somebody else's ears by some kind of dissent. So it's really interesting that this kind of language has been brought in to this bill where suddenly you could be chanting too loud or if your voice is too shrill, it might be a little bit too annoying. And that gives the police the right to shut down the demonstration or to say, actually, you were supposed to do this from, you know, 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock or whatever. And, and now you have to go home. And the powers which they have to arrest people are just um, a lot more draconian than they were before. So I'm interested in, you know, we'll get to this, like what what the establishment is trying to do by putting this stuff through. And I think the last thing to say on that is, is it's the 24th of June when this, when the public bill committee reports back to the House of Commons on this. So this is why this is such a live issue now between March, when the bill first went through the Commons, and and now. So that's just like a, a, a summary of it. But obviously it kicked off in London and Bristol and, you know, a loads of other places, which maybe you guys want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, let, let's talk about the context of why the bill is introduced and where it fits in. Because one of the, it, like all of these things, they, they they provide an opportunity to think about what's going on, basically. And so one of them is what's going on with the Conservative Party? What's going on with the right globally? They're, they are in a period of change, I think, with, with Boris Johnson. And I think Boris Johnson is probably closer to to the sort of general trend towards a sort of authoritarian right who need to roll back democracy, basically. Uh, and they're going to use that through using the law to restrict who can access democracy and the ways in which you can hold government's account. They're going to use the law to do that. And they're also going to use public spending in a sort of pork barrel way. What that means is that they're going to target public spending as a sort of bribe to particular areas who have voted Conservative. We'll see how far that'll go, right? Because I think there'll be severe limits on that. So so we should put the, the, the this act, this bill, next to the proposals to bring in ID cards for voters. So a restriction on, on the right to vote. Very similar. Like there, I think there's something like 36 bills in the US going through various state-level assemblies that the, the Republicans control to try and restrict the amount of people or to make it more difficult to, to vote, to make it more difficult to participate in democracy. And like what that points to is they've given up on this idea of ruling with uh, the, the whole nation in, in mind. So one nation conservatism is out the window. It's very much you know, the right is being forced into a position of minority rule, of trying to set the context in which in which minority rule can take place. And so they're going to address the needs of the minority which make up their, their social coalition, basically. This is going to be a difficult argument to make at the moment, but like I think that indicates that this bill has been introduced actually from a position of medium-term weakness, short-term strength, but like medium-term weakness, for conservatism around the world, I think. Yeah, and, and the the reason behind that is there's a change in class composition, you know, the, the wider context is changing and demographics in the medium to long term are not favourable to the coalitions that the Conservatives have put together. And the Conservatives are trapped by those coalitions. There's no way out because those coalitions, you know, I, I, I talk about age quite a lot in my work and burblings. 
uh, you know, but that's linked to things such as asset ownership, et cetera, you know, and these things are like the conservatives are trapped in this, in this, you know, their, their reliance on older voters, older asset hold owning voters, and then, a, you know, a shift away from talking about material interests, serving material interests of that coalition, but then shifting to talk about sort of about cultural issues, the culture war. That's the conservative playbook around the, around the world at the moment. So that means that in t- that means that you have to erect barriers or rely on the on the anti democratic barriers we have in place now uh, in order to protect that coalition from the majorities which oppose them basically. And so first past the post is the the thing in the, in the UK. So what do you think? So what do you think their vision is or was of the sorts of demonstrations or the sorts of expressions of public dissent that they are putting through this bill to try and stop in the future. That's the thing that I don't really have a vision of. Like, what do they think is going to happen in the next six months to a year that they want to stop happening? But the image that still haunts them is that image of Churchill with a bit of, you know, turf on his head to create a sort of Mohican. We were all there, weren't we? Yeah, we were all there, but that's still the image. Mayday 2000 for people. Yeah, Parliament Square for people who don't know, yeah. That's the image that haunts them. And I think in some ways, I think there's a sort of nostalgia amongst the Tories, actually, for this that, that historical moment when the, the only people who seem to be dissenting from the kind of mainstream consensus as it then was. I mean, then it was, it was more a kind of neoliberal, globalising consensus. But the only people who were visibly dissenting from it in public were sort of presented by the media, by the press, and were sort of experienced by a lot of people is just completely outside like ordinary political processes. And I think there's this sort of, you know, I, in the same way, you know, I know people don't, don't, people don't like me saying this, but in the same way, historically, people in the, on the far left enjoy a bit of a fascist revival. You know, not a serious one, but enough of a one to, you know, excuse a, a, some street-level punch-ups and some exciting organization you know, i don't people, think that's controversial i think you're, you're right <laughs> people on the right absolutely love the spectacle of like dirty protesters preferably with plenty of brown skin people in the crowd too like that threatening images of kind of the things which are supposedly precious to you know the great british public like statues of churchill I think that one of the issues with the kill the bill legislation is i don't i mean i think the id card thing is much more sinister to be honest I don't really think Kill the Bill is actually intended to make an intervention at what is seen as a a real site of kind of potential popular mobilisation. Because I just, I don't think the kind of ritual protests around Trafalgar Square and and Parliament Square have ever achieved much ever, really. Anyway, they've never posed any serious threat to ruling class power or, or even to the the, the authority of the, the government. The, and no, it, it doesn't only curb that, right? If we're to be fair, sorry to interrupt you, but but the the powers that will come in this bill will affect the you know the women who went out in Clapham Common. In our yeah, way, yeah I, well, I agree. It's, it is aimed at them. It's aimed at them, but I think it's aimed at them as part of a sort of culture war strategy. It's aimed at that. It's basically it's it is itself the kill the bill. I'm not saying it's not something to be opposed, but it is a sort of act of symbolic revenge aimed at those people on the behalf of you know resentful you know resentful old white men. But I don't think it's because they re- anybody really thinks those women are, are going to about to bring down the ruling class or even really significantly dent the Tory vote. 
it's more that you know part what the Tories offer, what the contemporary right that Keir was describing, what it offers to its supporters around the world is partly the spectacle of a kind of sadistic, you know, and largely pointless kind of punishment of various social groups against whom they they feel very resentful for various reasons, including women, including young people, including non-white people. So there's no question it's a really regressive and reactionary piece of legislation, but I think it's sort of... I think the ID cards thing is an interesting contrast because that is a very serious attack. I mean, they are really looking to weaken the capacity of anybody to challenge the status of the Tories as a one-party... You know, the status of England, at least, as a sort of one-party state. The bill, I think, is... There's no question it is completely tied up with all the processes that Keir was talking about. I just don't really, I don't think, I don't think, I I think the stuff it's aimed at symbolically curtailing is stuff that I don't think anybody really poses a serious threat to the status quo. It's more that it, it, it's a kind of, you know, like I say, it's a sort of symbolic expression of like resentment and, and of, and, you know, and of repressive power on the part of these groups who, indeed, as Keir says, I think it's a really important point. It's a really important point that the people who this is pandering to are people who, despite the fact that they're rich, the fact that they've got everything they ever wanted, really, on some level, they're they're the people who've got houses, they're the people who've got pensions, they're the people who had jobs all their lives. Despite that, there's this profound sense of loss amongst them, loss of status, this kind of loss of cultural centrality. I mean, it's something that, you know, sort of mainstream political science, I mean, people like... um, you know, Sobolewski and Ford in their book Brexit Land talk about this you know, in a slightly confused way, I think. But they talk about how, you know, there's these these constituencies who are fairly economically well off, but they're also very conscious that the world they came into adulthood was a world in which straight white men were the centre of the cultural universe and they're not anymore. And they feel kind of left out of that and they feel angry and excluded. So, and so they enjoy this sort of spectacle of imaginary revenge on all these subjects who they think have weakened their cultural status. I mean, it was the same, it was exactly the same Trump. I mean, that was the whole logic of Trumpism. The whole logic of Trump, really, was this sort of series of sort of symbolic attacks on constituencies that old white men felt had somehow displaced their cultural authority and centrality. So I think this is all just adding to Keir's analysis, really, that it does. It is about a kind of weakness, actually, for the right. And it's about a sort of, it's about the fact that there's this constituency who right now, especially in Britain, because of the electoral system, because of the asset economy, they are absolutely the most powerful constituency in the country. But nonetheless, they somehow feel that their world, the world is slipping through their fingers and they want to lash out at the people who they blame for that. I think, I think, that, I think there's something missing there, though, because I think... yeah. But because it's not, it's basically, it's not, um, it's not um, the the Green Mohican on on Churchill in two thousand and and what's that two thousand yeah, uh, you know it's um, it's the statue being pulled down in Bristol basically that's that's the direct that's the direct precursor, yeah. and what we saw just before the pandemic, we did see this huge upsurge, and actually during the pandemic, didn't we? But before the pandemic as well, you had the things such as Fridays t- for Future. You know, the, the school walkouts, these sorts of things, Extinction Rebellion, and then Black Lives Matter. And so, you know, that, that it's not just that there that this is this is some sort of resentfulness at bit. I think that that's a really good it's a good, good argument, this sort of like this feeling that there's a loss of of, of cultural centrality 
And I think just on slightly, just on that, I think it's a displacement therapy on that point, which is that there are things in the country that have experientially changed for those people. And it's where the blame, where they lie the blame, which is problematic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it's also, it's a backlash against something that they can sense, right? So it's always difficult when we're talking about what's in what's in the mind of conservative party politicians. I don't want to get in there. I don't know. I don't come from that background. It'd be hard to do that. But what we can say is that like there, there has been an upsurge of, of social movements and those social movements have been moving their way towards more disruptive action, towards more, things which, which, which disrupt business as usual. You can see that in Extinction Rebellion. You can see that in the direction that the sort of Fridays for Futures were moving in and the logic of the situation that like any renewed climate movement you're going to be moving in that direction of disruption, causing annoyance, causing right. I, I think you're right. Actually, I think this is the, if if we, there was one if there's one set of protests that will have led to this. To answer my own question, based on reacting to what you guys have been saying, I actually think it's XR. I think it's what happened with Extinction Rebellion in 2019. Actually. And the BLM protests as well. And BLM, of course. I mean, they were, BLM, they were much, yeah. much smaller in the in the UK, but like it had the, this simply huge movement in the US in, in, hanging over it in the in the background. Yeah, and so well, it's I, obviously aimed at BLM. Yeah, it's aimed at it. I just don't think it's aimed at BLM because they think BLM poses a serious political threat to them. I think it's aimed at BLM because they're pandering to a set of voters who like to imagine. The BLM poses a serious threat to them, and want and want BLM to be symbolically punished for existing. But I don't think that's the same thing as them actually believing that. Oh, if we don't stop BLM, there's going to be a revolution. Oh no, no, I agree. But like, I think so. so what, where I'd go with that is 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 if you had a look at the if we if we if you look at the situation in the UK or actually uh, you know in, in many parts of the world, but perhaps not in the US at the moment, right? But if you look at the UK, it is. It's like a textbook example that, that people like social movement theorists and sort of scholars of contentious politics, you know, they could use the example now in the UK to predict a big explosion in what they call contentious politics, which would be like social movements, protests, riots, you know, and, and so the, the frame they use for that is they call it political opportunity uh, structure theories and, and and it just goes like this you know if you have a large cohort of people who are who are who have got grievances their living standards are going down they're feeling very disgruntled and yet they have no opportunity to have that disgruntlement expressed or that, that those interests or desires expressed for the political system as it exists that's when you have like the, these upsurges in contentious politics and you could add to that actually because there's also this this, this, the, they call it the J-curve theory of revolution. But you could just say the J-curve theory of, of contentious politics. And the idea is this, is that the, the theory is you tend to get revolutions when you have rising expectations which get confounded. So basically you have a moment where your interests and disgruntlement was being expressed by the political system, through the political system, i.e. in during the Corbyn moment, which then gets confounded. And if you look at the, the political system in the UK, Every major political party is just predicated on denying the actual experiences of everyone under forty-five. Let alone, ex, you know, expressing their their, yeah. their interests. They're just like you, you. You do not exist. That yeah. is, and, and like you know, so the JK theory of revolution. We are not on the brink of revolution. There's nothing <laughs> to indicate that at all. But you could just say like this is the thing which will. You could just predict that like 
that this is the sort of circumstances where you would expect a big upsurge, upheaval um, yeah. in protest. I thought the I thought the the the, the protests. Well, it's still going on now, but the reaction to the European Super League, the proposal for a for a new league in football, uh, and that you know that this has led to, to to big protests by football fans. You know, the Man United Liverpool game, the the stadium was invaded, and that game was abandoned because of protests. And those protesters were quite young, actually. If you look at the pictures, they were all young. They all fit the brief, you know. They all fit the brief, apart from they probably don't look like the dirty hippie protesters that Jeremy was referring to. Let's not get too carried away, but that does look like the sort of different constituencies reacting in a, in a sort of similar way because of the circumstances that you would expect, you know, that, 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 that the theory would predict, I think. And you've got to remember that, you know, this started with the Sarah Everard protests so we have to think of it it's not just an anti-protest thing that this series of demonstrations killed the bill it started off fitting into the sort of general disgruntlement with the police which you see in the the, the black Lives matter movement etc this sort of the, the idea that we have to roll back police power or abolish the police as uh, as the ultimate horizon of that that movement goes it also fits in to uh, you know a general rise in feminist movements around you know the me too movements and then there's been these women's strike movements which have been very very big in in certain countries in poland and argentina etc but also reclaim the night i think that's really important in this in this specific case it was it was the irony of a of a woman walking down the street at night back home like being abducted and killed and then other women going out to for a vigil and then being like treated like horrifically by the police. I mean, it's even worse than that, isn't it, Nadia? Because the person who allegedly killed her, we'd probably say that was a policeman, a serving yeah, policeman. Yeah, exactly. It's just that, that is, yeah, it's just. Like, and, then the, the scale, and then the police the saying, and then the police, the police saying to women in Clapham that night when she was abducted, like the, the official advice was women stay at home. And, yeah. you know, for this to be 2021, like, I completely get why women, especially with the Reclaim the Night movement, were like, we're not having that. We have to mark this and we also have to, you know, <laughs> take back the streets as human beings. And then for that to be the reaction, it was just, you know. So you're right, basically. It's, it's, it's a compounded, it's a compounded effect of how BLM and then, you know, this, uh, the case of Sarah Everard and, and others link back to each other in this kind of spiral way. So it's not just about the bill, it's about policing and it's just about the right to protest, etc. But I, I'm I'm wondering like which is going to be the first demo to break that. If this bill goes and be- becomes an act, how is that going to affect people on the protesting side? But, but basically it's it's like this when you have when you have this huge expansion in police powers which which this does and so, you know, that the prospect is that you could have you you could face ten years in jail for a protest that that causes disruption or annoyance. So, so the, the the fans who invaded the Man United uh, Old Trafford the other day, Man United's football ground, they could be in jail for ten years. Now, it's unlikely that that would happen to them because that was not the constituency in which a police would want to make an example, right? But it, it could be. It could you know you could it could happen. So what would happen would be the way the way it would affect it is that that would be hanging over people, and so it wouldn't just be like big protests. It wouldn't be like protests in in, in central London, 
you know, the, the first target, I think, would be things such as the sorts of protests that, that, that renters unions do outside landlords' offices and these sorts of things, right? I think that's the sort of thing that would be cracked down on first. The police would say, well, this is, this is illegal. If you don't disperse now, you know, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be held under the, 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 whatever it's called, PCSC bill. Uh, and that, that's a maximum is 10 years. So you raise the potential entry cost into any sort of form of movement quite high. Yeah, it just becomes an actual deterrent for people. I mean, I remember this happening back in, I think it was 2007, but it might have been 2009, with uh, the Gaza demonstrations where there was Operation Ute, I think it was called. You know, And I know people who had their doors kicked in at four o'clock in the morning, and 100 people in Greater London and, you know, were taken in uh, for violent disorder for like throwing a pla- an empty plastic bottle or whatever. And people were, you know, arrested and thrown into jail. And by the way, they were all brown. So that that sort of stuff has happened before, but it's been, but it was under, I just wonder whether this solidifies that in practice, are the police just going to do the stuff they could do before? Or is it like you said, it's going to be that sort of smaller picket, you know, even is it going to be stuff that NGOs do? Do you know what I mean? Is it like the little, is it like the little, uh, it's not even a protest whatever you call it, standing outside, you know, a shop with a banner. It's probably going to be used very, like, arbitrarily, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's the answer. It might be useful to talk about whether, what are circumstances different to the whole Anti-Criminal Justice Act things now? Like, what? How might it play on, basically? Well, I think we should put it in the big, just the bigger context. I mean, there is a context of the criminalisation of protest. I mean, Britain historically doesn't have a good record of protecting things like the freedom to protest, basically. We don't have, I mean, interna- it's worth saying this for international listeners. Britain doesn't have a written constitution. It doesn't have a Bill of Rights. So... The British, you know, what passes for the constitution in Britain is the fact that essentially the government at any given time, which is all, all is completely controlled by one person, by the prime minister, is able to just do anything they want, basically. There is no, you know, there's some notion of sort of custom and practice, like, you know, protecting certain rights. But basically, there isn't like a, a constitutional right to assembly. There isn't a constitutional right to freedom of speech or, or anything like that. And historically, you know, to be honest, governments of right and left have been pretty free and easy about banning stuff that they didn't like, that they thought most of the public either didn't like or were indifferent to. It's not to, I'm not trying to downplay the significance, because I think it probably is true that, I mean, it's coming in partly for the reasons we said, and probably they are anticipating, that they're anticipating a historical period during which the government clearly doesn't have majority support, clearly isn't governing with consent, clearly is going to be openly antagonistic towards constituencies that its constituency doesn't care about in a way that governments have been reluctant to be since the 80s. And it probably is anticipating all that. But similarly, I mean, really, you can, because I'm trying to think of all the historical precedents, you can go back to the 80s, to the trade union legislation, to the police brutality against kind of peaceful protests that was really regular thing in the 80s. I mean, it was a really regular thing in the 80s for mounted police to just mow down protesters on things like student protests, just 
basically if they thought they could get away with it. We've talked about, you know, the Battle of the Beanfield before on the show. And you go back, you know, you can go back, you know, to previous centuries. I mean, there's a terrible history of kind of brutal, violent, quasi-military repression of demonstrations. So there's no question that they're bringing in the measures for specific reasons. But it's also, there is no sort of historical period in Britain when we've really enjoyed the right to peaceful assembly without that being just suspended any time people thought there was a threat you know there's a period like in the you can say in the late 1930 20th century once the actually the conservatives in the 1870s decided to start trying to legalize and decriminalize trade unionism for example some of that shift but any any time like the the government or the ruling class think there's a threat you know like in the 20s like multiple times in the 20s culminating in the great general strike in 26 they'll just suspend it like send in the army you know any time they think like workers are getting too out of hand they'll just br- they'll brutalize them so i suppose that is one reason i find it personally that is the, honestly the reason i find it personally hard to get overexcited about the current bill because i just think the whole it's it is definitely something we should fight against but you know there hasn't ever been a time and the british government hasn't been willing the british state hasn't been willing to just use swift brutal and arbitrary violence and incarceration against protesters so jeremy what you're saying is you're comparing the uk to itself like in in you know the last hundred years or whatever you know and that and it is really important to situate things historically but the class composition of also how people identified and and you know class power was in a different situation in the 20th century or a lot of the 20th century than it is now and i think it's interesting to look at it in terms of recent history like what is it going to do to to people who have had some experience of protest in the same way that I would ask the situation of, you know, for people who experience the movements of the squares all around the world, you know, be it in Tahrir or be it in Madrid or be it in Occupy or whatever, for that cohort of people who, you know, may be you know older, younger, whatever it might have been their first protest, like whether this is in the context of, you know, coming out of a pandemic, you know, another, another, the prospect of another five years of a conservative government, whatever, what is it going to do to them? And, you know, as Kia said, like, clearly it's a deterrent, but as always, I'm interested in the tipping point. Like, will people have a kind of historical um, lens uh, and go, oh, well, you know, we have to go for it anyway if we're really pissed off about this. We have to be part of some kind of dissenting movement because this is how the government reacts anyway or is it really going to function function in terms of putting people back in their box and my personal view on it is that something that hasn't been considered and I don't know whether this is part of the government's plan is the effect of the pandemic like I just think this summer people are going to want to be outdoors and I think that's both going to come in terms of wanting to party and socialize but also wanting to demonstrate I think that's all going to come together I think that's going to be linked, though, because, uh, you know, part, part of what you do with these bills, it's a signal to the police, basically, that you're let off the leash. You can do what the fuck you like this summer. Um, and so there's going to be lots of fighting around parties and all these sorts of things. You know, uh, you, I could imagine a very long, hot summer, basically. What that does politically is another question. In a way, I sort of see it, this is, as part of a, you know, we have to put situate this, as I, I sort of indicated earlier, as the end of, like, the, the Corbyn cycle the closing off of the opportunities within the political system 
although we have to keep as many of those as open as absolutely possible. And then you have this sort of like period in which people find new ways to sort of try to exercise some power or some or something like that. But I think it would be an absolutely disastrous thing if we just did this, if the if the movement as a whole did this swing, you know, oh, well, we tried the streets in the 2011 cycle, then we tried Parliament, now let's go and try the streets again, we're back to square one. I don't think that is the situation, right? But the, And so the really key problem is... <laughs> How does this, we can understand the context, we can predict and say, look, this is probably going to lead to an upsurge in sort of street politics. And they will get, they're going to be quite conflictual because, you know, they're, they're, all the circumstances indicate that this is when, when sort of contentious politics take off. All the, all the, all the indicators from the conservatives are um, they want to turn this into, into um, you know, violence as, as soon as possible. So how do you stop the protest movement becoming this small thing? And how do you get it to a stage in which it doesn't matter what, once you get to a certain level of scale, it sort of doesn't matter what the law is because the social forces are balanced in the other way, you know? And how do you get that so that the majority sees sees the the, the, the sort of like the protests that are coming and sees this in particular, this sort of, the, the sort of, the, the shift towards, constriction of dem- democracy and, and i think it's really important that we keep that in the frame we have to see that as part of this wider war against democracy right and so the the sort of response has to be to sort of position it as as w- within this wider crisis of of politics in the uk so basically we have to th- have to position it as as part of you know, the left's politics have to be about look we need to extend we need to defend democracy and we need to extend democracy not just by protest but also by addressing all of the other uh, limitations of the democratic system in the uk and and um i have been brought around to <laughs> pr being an important part of that but also like at some sort of settlement with the different countries and regions in, in the uk and like the left's role in that is to is to shift it into you know we need to democratize the economy and the way you do that is because you know if you're going to attack if you're going to tackle climate change and not going to tackle climate change in a way that that just reinforces the huge inequalities in the world then that has to be you know you have to talk start talking about democratizing assets and workplaces i'm not sure i entirely agree with the language used there but i think that's probably for another episode you hate democracy don't you yeah well yeah we have been here before i'm much more interested in freedom i think we've completely devalued the currency of talking about democracy if it's not about the economy and assets so i'm well up for democratizing the 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 economy and assets and that sort of stuff but i don't think using the term democracy means anything anymore i think it has to be about freedom and i think the left has massively devalued the currency of talking about the, a crisis in the uk politics we've been saying that for 150 years so you know of course there's a crisis because it's a crisis until we win right yeah but the 2020s are the 2010s were like basically an impasse following a crisis the 2020s like this is the shit hits the pan period just for climate politics alone do you know what i mean you can see that that's already that, that that's just something we can't get away from. Big big shifts have to happen in the twenty twenties, or we're in a really 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 ter- much much worse situation. And you can already see that, like you know, in other countries such as in the US, there are shifts towards that. You know, there are shifts towards recognizing that things are going to have to change, 
but this is a crisis. Like this is a world historic crisis situation, not just in terms of the economy, but because of like the, a much longer cycle of politics. Not like the the the, the ten year boom and bust. Not like the sort of fifty year epochal crisis we have, but like the climate crisis, which is you know basically the coming. This decade is when the last two hundred years of industrial capitalism come to the crunch point, basically. Which is why I think this is the period of like, like it doesn't matter if you if you if you if you ramp up, you know. But, or what I mean to say is ramping up the 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 entry costs for politics that will have an effect, but it's not going to stop the stuff that's coming, basically. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I don't. Uh, I, don't I suppose we. I suppose it's worth thinking. Like, well, what is the that's one scenario. Like, is there any other scenario? Is there any scenario in which that's not the case? Is there any like version of that not being the case? Because it seems like, you know, Biden seems like he's presenting the possibility of a scenario in which, you know, capital makes enough compromise. You know, it, it suppresses the fossil, it, its own like fossil fuel fractions. It makes enough compromises to pretty much reestablish control of the situation. Get a handle on the, get a handle on the ecological situation. So, is this going to stop you going to a demo? Though that's what I want to know. So, with all of that being, you know, I agree on all of that. But is it? How yeah. is this going to affect our 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 um Will it, yeah. interaction? It's not going to stop me going to a demo. It's going to stop you. I mean, it might do. I haven't been on a demo yet, but the reason I haven't been on a demo is because I've made the choice that it's not safe because of COVID. So I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. I feel the stakes are pretty high. I don't want to go to jail for 10 years, for sure. So it does affect me. It does affect how I think about it. Yeah, it's a good point, yeah. You know, like, I don't want to go to jail for 10 years for being at the wrong place in the wrong time. Like, I've given enough. Like, capitalism's taken enough from me, you know? But so, it won't be going, so it's it won't hard. Be going on it's a demo hard. for that, though. I think it'll be something like... Would you go and stop a coal train going into a power station? I mean, I wouldn't that. do that anyway. Yeah, but, no, I was but never other very big. <laughs> but, but I, so I wouldn't do that anyway. So no, but I think you're right, actually. So I keep on bringing this back to like street demonstrations when actually what we should be looking at is a lot more of the direct action stuff. You're right. So I think that that's the question. You know, I was never involved in that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm not arguing that's a good it's a good strategy <laughs> unless it happens on a really huge scale but like that like uh, and it's a really good question Jem's raising about like will Biden offer a path out of this um you know and I think we're both reading like Adam Tooze's <laughs> articles at the moment but it's late Adam Tooze's latest article on Bidenism you know it looks at the scale of of both both infrastructure spending but also that the sort of like green new deal elements that Biden's offering and, and and he just says like like this is just basically Biden is really pushing that the boundaries of what is possible at the moment to get through US politics but when you look at like when you compare it to what is necessary the gap is just simply huge right and so i that that's why i think it's not going to come without struggle basically bridging that gap will have to will, will involve changing what seems socially and politically possible and that comes with a change in the balance of forces and that comes with with politics, and it will involve well street politics. It will involve sort of like disruptive politics, like uh, whether we like it or, or not. The point is like how do we how do we make that you know not a minority politics? How do we make that like a a, a big enough politics which which keeps its foot 
which keeps at least some sort of links open so it can be articulated with 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 the politics of the of of the state basically well that's well that is a re- that's a really good question now okay that okay now i think okay i'm finally waking up a little bit now i think <laughs> look there's a really open question for me as to whether the kinds of polit- thing, the kinds of politics that we're mainly talking about that we think the bill is mainly targeted at whether they've ever played a very significant role in actually achieving any sort of like progressive or radical gains because mostly what we're talking about is sort of adventurist politics, symbolic protest, you know, what came to be called direct action in the 90s, but which actually the anarchists who, did, who first coined the term direct action would never have recognised as direct action because that term was supposed to mean uh, interventions that had some permanent effects, you know, not just sort of symbolic street theatre. So there's a real open question as to whether, on the, whether that kind of politics has ever really mattered that much to anything. Whereas the things we're talking about that do make a difference, they include a range of activity from community organising, trade union activism, through to like political, you know, sort of political party work. But I'm not sure if, if those, I'm not sure that that kind of protest politics ever plays much more than a kind of cosmetic role outside of actual pre-revolutionary situations. I mean, if you want historical examples, once you get into an actual pre-revolutionary situation, then taking to the streets, toppling the statues and all that stuff actually does play a fairly significant role at certain junctures. But outside of pre-revolutionary situations, I'm not sure it does make a huge difference. 15th of February 2003, Iraq war demo. You don't think that made any difference? What, to the war? Didn't no, make a difference. Any difference. Any difference. You don't think that make... that is like a seminal point in, no, it is in a good, UK, it is a UK good point, history actually. in terms of... But that the fact... wasn't what we're talking about. I mean, the whole point about, I mean, that demo in Britain was it wasn't, it didn't involve any of this kind of stuntism. It was a peaceful mass demo that was that was massive. Uh, and, and a massive, let us never forget, the reason that demo was massive was because the Daily Mirror supported it. And the Daily Mirror put on its front page to, to telling people to go to it. Really? No. Yeah. You think that's Absolutely why it was massive? Why. Yeah. Everyone knew someone who, who went yeah, to because that because of the Daily Mirror. Because of the Daily Mirror. There's loads of people who went to that demonstration who are small C conservative, and that's why it was significant because everybody knew somebody who went to that demonstration. And there are plenty of other people who couldn't go to that demonstration for childcare reasons or whatever. But the point is, socially, it had a really important. It, it has socially, it had a really important position because of a the effect that it had. I mean, people still cite it. I think obviously it's anecdotally and from stories you know, that I come across and, and, and read, and I don't know the ap- actual figures on this, but I think that was really important in terms of people's understanding of democracy because so many people genuinely thought that they would stop the war. Like genuinely thought that if 2 million people went on the street, they couldn't possibly bomb Iraq. And that was a turning point, I think. I think we haven't had a demonstration that big since then, it's not just because of the Daily Mirror. It's because of that where that's situated in the British imagine, imaginary of what democracy is. Yeah, I agree it had that effect, but it was largely... I mean, I think it has an international effect as well, which is a, is a whole other set of questions. I think it, Absolutely. But, but I think it... it yeah, made, yeah, 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 I'm I with think, you there. I think it made it difficult. I've always said it made it difficult for... The America couldn't pursue its, historic, its, its traditional policy in Latin America because it had blown its legitimacy. 
because of the because it was so clear that the the Iraq invasion just didn't have international legitimacy, and that that was what created the window for the pink tide to some extent. I think, and it had reverberations on Cameron and Syria later. Like, yeah, that, and yeah. on Tony Blair and all of the and all of those things. Well, that's but, all true. But the immediate effect here was just demoralisation. I mean, it wasn't like a bad thing; I mean, it was a good thing. The immediate effect here was that people just, you know, people felt utterly demoralised. And this huge demonstration hadn't been able to change the course of the, you know, hadn't been able to change the policy. And yeah, I mean, it, it demonstrated something to people, but it demonstrated to people that democracy was totally broken. And then it took took another 20 years, 15 years before people's response to that was, oh, well, maybe we should get involved in, in mass parties and fix democracy. Like for the next 15 years, it was either we do nothing or we just do sort of symbolic street protests. We just do sort of climate camp and things that don't really, that ultimately I, have yeah, no the- outcomes. See, but I think those are two different constituencies there. The activists, you know, the people who always go to demonstrations, because let's face it, the vast majority of people don't go on demonstrations. For the vast majority of people, going and standing up and protesting and something is is like not the normative form of behavior. Like, you know, it isn't. Like all three of us have been on loads of demos. It isn't for the vast majority of people. And I think Iraq for this generation was was different in that case. So I think the way looking at how activists reacted to that and whether it was good or bad for them to be demoralized is one thing, but the effect that it had on other people who are not activists, I think is different. Do you, do you not think the effect on other people was demoralizing? I think it was massively de- demoralizing, but it wasn't demoralizing in any way that situated itself within a set of political thinking where people were like, right, what do we then do now? Because those were not people who were going to be politically active. They were just people who felt really strongly about the war. What do you think the effect of it was then overall? That's what I'm trying to get at. What, what do you think the overall effect of the experience was? I think the overall effect of the experience is that people realised that they were not able to participate, that democracy wasn't working. And it created a neutering effect where people thought, oh, demos don't make a difference. I think that's not a great an- a- a- analogy to what um, what Jeremy was saying. No. I, and in fact, I'd offer a completely different example of, of, of those sorts of things which have had really, really big effects on politics. And the first one is the Black Lives Matter movement in the US or the several waves of it. That along with like, you know, the, the sort of Corbyn, Sorry, Sanders <laughs> wave. Um, like, that sets the that sets the context in which in which somebody like Biden, who's a bit of a politician, sniffs the wind and sort of basically accepts the analysis of the left, basically, uh, which is sort of where we're at. But I'd also say that, like you know, the the sort of the what you what 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 you call stuntism, or you know, the sort of like my example of a small group of people who are going to go and blockade a train or something like that. In a way, that's not way. I well, I don't know. There's the the climate movement has got its own sort of problems of how you turn that into into actual politics. But what I'm thinking about about the things that are going to get disrupted or made more difficult are the things that you need to do in order to do stuff like community organising and build renters unions and to build unions. Basically, you know, they all they all they all rely on the on the idea of you get small getting small wins and you get small wins by threatening disruption. Basically, that's how you build. That's in you public, build. you mean? So, like the little actions in public? Yeah, yeah, little actions in public, as in yeah, demonstrations outside outside uh, uh, landlords' offices, wildcat strikes, and these sorts of things, and the sort of things that 
allow you to at least point to 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 you know potential of winning something in the, in the short term you know what i mean it's those sorts of things which i think which i think are the biggest threat of getting disrupted so there's a there's a there's a acorn i hold in a protest in leeds tomorrow when we're recording this because it basically it gets it, it this bill if it goes through and it gets enforced you know it, it disrupts their strategy for for growth basically which is about having these sorts of protests trying to get some sort of sense of collectivity amongst amongst renters and all these sorts of things i think that's the sort of danger of the, of the disruption that'll, that'll take place but i think the sort of 10-year thing will just be used as a sort of on on a discretionary basis and just in an exemplary way so basically it won't be the ngo protest it'll be a much more favorable target for for the conservatives and the tory press basically but you know if you get some like black radical group who are defacing uh, a churchill statue uh, then that acts as a sort of exemplary thing as a precaution you know a warning to to everybody basically i think that'll be the way it'll pan out i think you're right yeah and i think i think it'll be used against i mean it'll be used in way but i think i think it in some ways probably when we'll look if, yeah historians will look back on it in 100 years and see it more than anything as a sort of codification of the responses to the, not the student protests, but the sort of riots in the quote unquote riots in 2011. Because to a certain extent, I, on some level, that it's that sort of stuff they're more scared of, I think. And that sort of, and also they, I think, you know, they've maintained a strategy for decades of really of coming down very hard on kind of poor communities, like urban communities, black communities. They've maintained a strategy of coming down very, very hard on those communities very quickly because essentially those those communities already suffer such high levels of oppression. You know, they don't have the kind of social capital. They don't have the kind of educational capital, you know, to protect themselves. And so they really, they get smacked down like every time they start to, you know, look like they might start to become a threat. And I think that is probably a reason why BLM is, I think, I think this is, I think it is a response to BLM, actually. I think it is, it will be used more in response to stuff like that, actually. And I think, and also, you're right, it'll be used arbitrarily against forms of community organising. Yeah, it seems to ha- be vague enough in terms of how it's actually written up that, like you guys were saying before, it'll be confused, like the police will use it sometimes like this and sometimes like this and... Yeah, but, you know, we've gone over time but we haven't talked about the thing nadia said at the start she rightly wanted to talk about because I'm, I'm too i'm worried that a lot of what we've said so far is just like acfm truism. it was like we've got an authoritarian right the right is bad do community organizing i'm worried about but nadia you raised this question like well how is the left how is the kind of formal left and the center left responding to it because one of the huge differences between the Corbyn moment and every other moment in the Labour Party, like since the mid eighties, is you know we, when we had Corbyn as leader, we had some, we did have someone who would have stood up and opposed something like this and defended the right to protest. And but I don't even know what is the party's position on the. I don't even know what the party's position is. Have, are we, ha ha! What is the party's position? Have we opposed it? <laughs> what is the party's? Position? Am I understand what we were? We were not opposing it, and then there was more pressure that we might oppose it. And then what is it like? What I don't is know about. I don't know about the we anymore, especially because it's the day after election day. I'm not sure I can get on board. The, I think the actual the, position was the that they, they they were briefing that they were going to support it, and then. The, this, the opposing the, committee stage, yeah, an opposing committee stage. But then um, the Sarah Everard protests 
happened and that the, the wave of like revulsion around that meant that they i think they opposed i can't remember there they are you're right no no you're remembering right that is what happened that is what happened no that is important so what happened is they basically brought in this bill to give the police all these draconian powers to crack down on protests and it was clearly a direct response to black lives matter and a way of pandering to their constituency over it. Then the Sarah Everard protest happened, which were coming from a constituency which is completely different from the constituency they thought they were suppressing the, with the bill in the first place, which is essentially you know, the urban black community who they've, they've been willing to smack down violently for decades. Instead, oh no, it's like, it's middle-class white women. and then, Women, I'm not sure it was middle-class, it was just women, all sorts of women. Uh, if it had been only if it had only been sisters uncut, like it wouldn't have. I don't think but it, it would was. Have changed what I'm saying is, ecology. it's not. It was all sorts of women who went out. On yeah, no, of course, it was all sorts of women went on the protest. But it was the fact that it was you know nice women. It was nice white middle class women that, that changed the attitude of the Labour leadership in particular, wasn't it? I mean that that was. What... I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, but I just want to be clear that the demonstrations had on the Sarah, Sarah Everard stuff had all sorts of women in on it. Yeah, sure. Um, that's right. And the Labour leadership were basically like not willing. They were showing themselves totally unwilling, weren't they, to to actually line themselves up with BLM or fig- or figures on the left to oppose it. And then and then they kind of had to change their position. So that is interesting, isn't it? Mm. I also think it opens it, it it offers an opening for the Labour left. I think in that um, the Labour leadership are pretty anti-democratic in their organisation of the Labour Party, <laughs> in their attitude towards policy. Um, but also, you know, I, I remember all of the sort of um, the, the liberal commentariat and the sorts of like, the, the sort of bizarre comments, uh, the bizarre fantasies about Corbyn rounding people up and putting them in camps and all these sorts of things, right? <laughs> when he was like, you know, the probably has got the, the biggest civil libertarian record of any parliamentarian and so the first this is like this oh actually it was the second because it was the sort of spy cops there was the bill which basically gave immunity to undercover officers for anything including rape and murder which starmer uh, uh, supported if you remember it's just like this the direction of the sort of labor right who who uh, either starmer is or has been completely captured by you know, it is incredibly illiberal. You know, it is the, the that's the politics of the of the much more illiberal end of the new Labour years sort of politics, that sort of authoritarian illiberal politics. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. But I think if this all speak. I think this all illustrates your your analysis, Keir. Actually, that it's basically that you know it's a very febrile situation. The right are not as strong or as confident as they probably look at the moment as, as, and, and as an 80 seat majority in parliament would seem to imply. I think that is that is registered by the Labour leadership kind of wavering so much like on the one hand wanting to embrace this like authoritarian social conservatism and on the other hand being quite quickly spooked you know by a big section of their own base their, their, the metropolitan base into having to oppose it. 
I mean, I think overall the situation is just a lot more open than people think it is. I don't. I think. You, I think this is. The, I think this should be that. This should, in some ways, this should be the theme of the show. I think. But it, I mean, on the one hand, superficially, it looks like really terrible. Like we've got an eighty-seat Tory majority, got the Tories running rampant in the local elections. We've got a right-wing Labour leadership, like hysterically, like trying to kind of stamp out the left and we and we've got a government we we're, we've got a country that has never really placed a high value on democracy or freedom of assembly just cranking up the authoritarianism but underneath all that is the fact that well ultimately the actual social constituency that is in favor of all this stuff is is small no, they, they're just, they're massively overrepresented. Like they're the only people voting in the local elections yesterday because everybody else knows perfectly well their votes don't count for anything. But they're small and they're shrinking and they're getting older. Mm. And we've got the summer of love post-COVID coming up <laughs> unless we have some massive crisis so everyone's going to party and that's going to only be good for us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that can only be good. For it's us. either going to be the summer of love or the summer of rage, or perhaps, perhaps oh, both. Well, bit of both. Get back for our for our autumn edition, people. <laughs> this is. Adam.